Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We are now officially in week two of Donald Trump's sulk, his refusal to concede the election, uh, and uh, the refusal of the administration to begin the, the transition. Before we get into all of this, and I want to talk about the post-election fever swamp and just the, you know, all of the stuff that's being thrown up against the, the wall. Uh, I, I, want, I wanted to set the scene for today's conversation with this great monologue from John Avalon from CNN, who does a reality check. And he puts what's happening now in context that that not only are many of these claims of, of election fraud uh, completely bogus or exaggerated or very, very sketchy, but they really fit a pattern. And, uh, you know, normally we wouldn't play something quite this long at the beginning of, of this. But but I do think that this is a great scene setter for the conversation that I want to have with David Priest on today's podcast. So this is John Avalon from CNN. When it comes to claims about mass voter fraud, let's be clear. Trump supporters, you're being lied to. Donald Trump has a history of lying loudly, turning baseless accusations into play to the base articles of faith. Now, the goal is often to create a fake scandal to distract from a real one. But when the accusation is actually investigated by Republicans in Congress or the Trump Justice Department, it comes up empty because there was never anything there. Just yesterday, Senate Republicans, too afraid to admit in public that Joe Biden won the election, were busy relitigating 2016 by putting Andrew McCabe under oath again. We're going to find somebody accountable for something. Now, if Lindsey Graham sounds a bit frustrated, that's because investigations haven't gone Republicans' way. So let's look at eight big Trump lies that have proven to be bogus. Start with the five-volume bipartisan Senate intel report that found Russian interference in 2016 was not a hoax, as Trump still constantly claims, but very real. Likewise, the IG report found that the FBI probe into the Trump campaign's Russia ties was justified and not politically biased. Even the much-hyped Durham report that Trump insisted would lead to the prosecution of his political opponents never materialized. The same is true of Trump's claims to have caught Obama spying on his campaign while engaging in unmasking. Hyped as one of the biggest scandals in American history. Well, it fell apart after investigators quietly concluded that no crime had been committed. In 2018, Trump's own initial voter fraud commission was disbanded without offering a shred of evidence of widespread voter fraud. And after Trump's impeachment, over trying to strong-arm Ukraine into announcing a bogus investigation into the Bidens, Senate Republicans ran a counter-investigation, relying on Russian disinformation, and still concluded that there was no wrongdoing by the former vice president. You might ask, what about Hillary Clinton's emails? Well, after countless lock-her-up chants, a Trump State Department inquiry found no deliberate mishandling of classified information. And don't forget Trump pumping up the baseless and racist birther conspiracy theory. He claimed he'd paid for investigators to go look for Obama's birth certificate in Hawaii. But according to his aide Michael Cohen, that was a lie as well. Who effing cares, Trump allegedly said. Wait until the headlines come out. This story's going to be huge. And that's the point. These lies are about playing to conservative crowds, demonizing Democrats, and dominating the partisan news cycle. They flood the zones, so some accusations stick. But repeating lies doesn't change reality. And the real scandal is staring us in the face. For the first time in our history, the president of the United States is trying to resist the results of an election he lost. Some of Trump's own lawyers have admitted in court they have no evidence of voter fraud. But negative partisanship's a powerful narcotic, and Trump supporters will give him money and chant slogans in the streets. They don't know they're being played for fools by the president they love. 
while our democracy pays the price. And that's your reality check. Hmm. So joining me on today's Bulwark podcast is one of our most frequent guests and a friend of the podcast, David Priest, the Chief Operating Officer of Lawfare. Good to have you back, David. Yeah, Charlie. I mean, hearing John lay it out like that, um, I got to admit, it sounds bad. I got to admit. <laughs> well, it raises all kinds of questions, including the fact that, that if you've been lied to again and again and again, at what point do people go, okay, I'm out? Right. I'm, done I'm, the, I'm actually the, tired of the, the gif or the gif, if you pronounce it incorrectly, yeah. the gif of Lucy pulling the football out because time and time and time again, you're shown that this man is leading you astray. And yet everybody uh, is feeling, well, this time it's different. This time I believe him. Really? Um, you, you can't listen to what John laid out there and feel that way. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think it was McKay Coppins had a piece in uh, The Atlantic and where, where he talked about he started off actually talking about um, cults and the way that they that e even when their predictions turn out not to be true, that they they still believe it, it's kind of a psychology, you know, a psychological. Thing. Oh, I, here, here it is. It's, it, it's a 1956 book when prophecy fails. And it's written by some social psychologists who studied this religious sect. These are a group called the Seekers. And they were absolutely convinced that Armageddon was going to come on a, on a certain day, right? So they all gathered together on the appointed day. You know, they waited at their leader's home to wait for deliverance. And these psychologists wanted to know, so how are the seekers going to react when the world didn't come to an end? Would they, would they go, we've been duped. This is terrible. This is awful. Um, actually, it turns out that, you know, when didn't materialize, they simply decided that God had spared Earth from destruction because of their faith and that they had been right all along. So, I mean, there's a certain you almost you do need to go to the social psychology of cults to understand what's what's going on here, how often you have been lied to. So there's so much that's been going on. Interesting. They had Rudy, uh, Rudy Giuliani, it was um, Lindsey Graham on uh, during that hearing yesterday. Uh, Lindsey Graham wrote a letter at one point uh, you know, citing examples of fraud. And the one that he was uh, and he included, by the way, the this Pennsylvania postal worker who claimed that uh, there had been massive voter fraud in Pennsylvania, that he had you know, witnessed the backdating of some of the ballots. Well, yesterday he recanted that that story turned out to be absolutely untrue. Uh, it's interesting, you know, Pam Bondi, the former attorney general of Florida and Rudy Giuliani tweeted out this breathless story that Real Clear Politics had retract, had rescinded its call that uh, that Biden had won Pennsylvania, which meant he wouldn't be president elect anymore. The story was completely fake. It's completely uh, bogus. Hmm. So, I mean, we're we're living in this world of um uh, Oceans, oceans of mayored. Okay, so I, I and David, I, I, a couple of things because you, you're an expert on trans on transitions and on you know the the, the daily briefing. I want to start with this: How alarmed should we be that we're seeing watching the decapitation of the Department of Defense? There are a lot of people who, are, I mean, this is this is a, this is this is concerning. It is extraordinary. What's going on there? What's your read? Uh, moderately concerned, Charlie. This this is not in my top five list of things okay. to worry about, but it has the potential to be more. So here's why. The, the fact of a few civilian leaders atop the Department of Defense, uh, even in very important positions, you know, what they're able to do by themselves is quite minimal. 
uh, maybe they are able to give orders that certain information shouldn't be shared with a transition team, which would be problematic and could be overcome. Or they would try to purge some files of this or that. that that's possible. But here's the thing. They, they are individuals in one of the largest organizations in the world. And I can't say it much better than Alex Vindman did. And he had tweeted out that he knows the uniformed services will refuse illegal orders and DOD career civil servants won't be complicit in illicit activities. Uh, and, I, and I agree with that. There's a whole lot of people of honor in the Pentagon and across the Department of Defense generally. And even if you get some 34-year-old political hack coming in who tries to do something untoward, if it crosses the line into something that is illegal regarding documents or policies, um, that will not stand in that organization. Okay, so here's the classic quote. Let's talk about the, the transition and the delay. The classic quote that's floating around everywhere is this, uh, is somebody that, it's in the Washington Post, where Republicans are telling themselves, what's the downside for humoring mm-hmm. him for this a li- for a little bit of time? No one seriously thinks the results will change, this, this official told the Post. He went golfing this weekend. It's not like he's plotting how to prevent Joe Biden from taking power on January 20th. He's tweeting about filing some lawsuits. Those lawsuits will fail. Then he'll tweet some more about how the election was stolen, and then he'll leave. So no harm, no foul. I mean, okay, so I think the last part's right. Trump is going to leave. But the damage is very, very real on a number of different levels, isn't it? The damage is very real to the system. The damage is very real to exacerbate something that I was not sure could be exacerbated, which is the lack of public faith in our institutions. That's all real. But I actually get it from a political point of view. Think about many of these people who are out there making this play. These are people who are either from relatively safe districts or states, or ones that, if close, were in what this last election should have been their their closest call. Let's look at Lindsey Graham, for example, in South Carolina. If after everything that has happened in the last four years, in terms of his hypocrisy, in terms of his willingness to, to go along and essentially join the cult, when he had been very clear back in 2015 and 2016 about calling out the problems of Donald Trump, if the people of South Carolina weren't going to turn on him for this election, does he really think that they're going to remember this moment in six years? And even if they do, will oh, yeah. it hurt him? And how do you think it feels for Republican representatives, the vast majority of which in the House of Representatives have said nothing against what the president is doing? How do you think it feels for them in increasingly gerrymandered districts that are safe seats where their biggest threat is not from a larger center that pushes back against uh, encroachment upon regular institutions of American governance, their biggest threat in the next election is a primary from someone further out on the populist cultish extreme. So politically, I get it. I hate it. But politically, I get it right now. The interesting thing will be when a few members of the leadership start turning and they tell their members, either explicitly or implicitly, look, we are now shifting to how are we going to govern or obstruct, if the case may be obstruction against Biden. We now have to shift to that. How quickly do they come into line and stop playing to the cult figure, the cult leader, and instead thinking about 
how do we actually do something in the next yeah. few years? See, I, I think it's even more complicated. And I, I think they have a very difficult exit strategy here. And I think I'm going to write something about this for, mm. for, for tomorrow, because the conventional wisdom right now is that, is that Mitch McConnell made his statement that he's going along with the president because mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's focused on the runoffs in Georgia and that everything's about getting those votes, not demoralizing the base so that that you, you need to keep uh, you need to keep Trump in play. You need to keep the voters in line. You need to keep the base all ginned up and everything, you know, so that they'll turn out to vote for the two Republicans who are on the ballot in Georgia. But here's the problem with that. That's January 5th. Mm -hmm. And they can't really keep it going until January 5th. They need an exit strategy at some point uh, when the votes are certified or when the electoral votes are actually cast. Now, the electoral, the electoral votes are counted, I mean, are cast, what, on December 14th or something like that? I'm, mm -hmm. So at some point, they're going to have to acknowledge this before January 5th. Um, and it would have been easier for them to have bailed early than now to having gotten 70, 80 percent of Republicans thinking that there's something hair on fire here. There, there is nothing. But they've got them to believe that that uh, this is an illegitimate election for them to back off before the Georgia vote. It's going to be very, very awkward. But I also want to fo focus on. Now, I don't know whether you agree with me on this. I I, I read through all of the the, the contingencies, the, the the nightmare nuclear scenarios where Trump uh, uses litigation to block secretaries of state from certifying the vote uh, that they deadlock and then they go to then they turn to Republican legislators, which would dec basically declare the elections null and void and flip the states around. I just think that that is uh, beyond unlikely. So mm -hmm. the short term, uh, is, there's going to be a lot of pain and ugliness, but Joe Biden's going to be sworn in on January 20th. But the damage I think is twofold. I mean, number one, the the long term damage to our faith in the democratic process and legitimacy, I think, is very, very real and very grave. And I think we're going to be living with it for a very long time. Shorter term, this delayed transition, the refusal to give daily briefings to Joe Biden, the refusal to allow members of the Biden transition team to get to work. Uh, you know, a lot of people have you know are, are noting that the 9-11 Commission very specifically said that the, the delay in the presidential transition after the 2000 election may have contributed to the administration's uh, you know, unreadiness to stop the terrorist attacks of September 11th. That 36-day delay cut the normal transition period in half, and it had potentially serious national security consequences, didn't it? It, it did, but we need to separate out two things here. First, there is the overall big executive branch transition process. That is what the GSA determination unlocks the money for. And that's the money for offices, the money for staff, the expedition of security clearances. All of that process is what's on hold now. That is uh, generally what the 9-11 Commission was referring to. The fact that there was no momentum building until essentially mid-December did put the Bush administration at a disadvantage starting out because they didn't have the people, they didn't have the clearances, they didn't have the time to fully review policies. It left them just a few short weeks to do so. That is that is very real and that is the main concern now. The other side of it, which is related but not directly, is the provision of the ultimate intelligence to the president-elect and presumably the vice president-elect. 
That is a presidential decision. Now, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence Mm. has come out and said, we have not received a determination from GSA, and therefore we are not briefing them yet. Okay, that's their choice, because you really have a spectrum here of what could unlock that part of it. The Transition Act does not mention the president's daily brief. That's a separate issue that is presidentially controlled. So you could imagine a situation where President Trump, or perhaps another president would be more likely, would say, yes, indeed, the GSA has not made its determination, but I authorize the intel community to start briefing the president-elect just in case. We have precedent for this. This is what happened in 2000. The Supreme Court had not yet ruled, but the Clinton administration decided that Bush needed to be brought into the intelligence circle, Hmm. and they Hmm. authorized the president's daily brief to go to George W. Bush, and he started seeing it on December 5th, before the election was effectively resolved by the Supreme Court decision. Now, President Trump has not done that, and honestly, I don't see him doing that. So what's the other end of the spectrum? Well, you could imagine that officials in the intelligence community, who almost certainly had set up a command center at the Biden headquarters to start briefing him even on election night if need be, and in most elections, they do start briefing the president-elect the morning after the election, they could have just started briefing him and then dared the president or the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, to basically pull it back and stop the process. You can understand why people would not do that, especially if the DNI had told them we cannot start briefing yet. So they're left with something in the middle. And if you're left with something in the middle and you have no clear direction from the president or the national security advisor, it is reasonable that high-level officials in the office of the director of national intelligence would say, let's do what the rest of the government is doing. Let's operate in the spirit of the Transition Act and wait for GSA to make a determination. So for me, there's no scandal that they're not yet briefing him. Is it a good idea? No, he probably should be brought on board. But you have to remember, Charlie, this isn't like Donald Trump coming into the presidency or even Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter coming into the presidency with no exposure to national level intelligence. This is Joe freaking Biden. He was vice president for eight years, reading the president's daily brief every day after having decades of foreign policy and national security experience in the Senate. Yeah, there are very few people who've come into the presidency with with the kind of experience that Joe Biden has, you know, and I, I, I was I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, obviously, I wish Joe Biden was not quite so elderly and there's a considerable downside to electing a 78 year old man as president of the United States. On the other hand, mm-hmm. uh, this is somebody who is not going to be overawed by the job. Here's somebody who has been there. When he walks in the Oval Office, it's not going to be, oh, my gosh, you know, I've never been here before. Right. He has, I mean, you know, compare his <clears throat> level of, of knowledge and experience with what Bill Clinton experienced when he walked in the door yeah. or Donald Trump when he and walked in the door. that's a big difference, door. Charlie. There's a I mean, dramatic difference. You yeah. look at not just the man, and yes, Joe Biden is truly exceptional, probably the best prepared president coming in since George H.W. Bush in terms of exposure to national level intelligence and and foreign policy issues. But look at other cases where you had this kind of transition, where somebody was coming in and had to learn the system of government after being out of the woods. Um, You had Bill Clinton coming into office. Well, Democrats had not been in the White House uh, since January of 1981. You did not have this cadre of people who were relatively recently in office who were going to be at senior levels of the administration. 
if you go back to Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter came into office in January of 1977. Democrats had not been in the White House since Lyndon Johnson. And again, you did not have this huge array of senior officials who had recently been in those agencies and departments. Even going back to FDR coming into office, he replaced Herbert Hoover, who had been after Calvin Coolidge and Warren Harding. You had a long time since Democrats had been in the White House. That is not the case now. Not only do you have Joe Biden, who has recently had access to all of this material, but some of his senior most appointees are going to be people who worked in a functioning government, whether you like the policy or not, they saw how the national security process is supposed to work. They understood the bureaucracies. They are coming into office, even in a delayed transition, they're going to be in a much better position than the Trump team did, given how they handled the transition and appointed people who had never been part of a functioning national security process before. You know, a couple of things. Um, I want to talk about Bill Barr's memo in, in, in just a moment. But the one of the things we're seeing a lot of things that we've never seen before. So let's just get that off. the. You know, there'll be a lot of unprecedented things that are mm-hmm. going to be happening now over the next couple of weeks. But uh, I think it's rather remarkable watching how the world is embracing uh, Joe Biden as the president elect, um, that the world has moved on while the GOP is still stuck, uh, you know, in, in, in Trump world, all of these international leaders who have decided, okay, you know, the American democracy has moved on, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Modi mm-hmm. of India, uh, Boris Johnson um, did, uh, er- Erdogan of Turkey, which had to really, really burn uh, uh, Donald, Donald, Donald Trump. So the, the rest of the world has already moved on, but they're also watching this election mess. And we have always been the the beacon of democracy and have lectured other countries on the way that they should handle elections. So how does this play out around the world? It think? seems like it seems like most countries, uh, and I should say most individuals leading those countries, um, understand what's happening, um, which is what most American people understand. The poll I saw said 80% of people understand Joe Biden is the president elect yep. and will, will be sworn in. Um, That number is disturbingly low, but most people get it. Around the world, most people get it too. They get this is what's going to happen, but they're not stupid. Um, They understand that despite the last four years of weakening alliances and other national security weaknesses, the United States is still the most powerful country in the world. And Donald Trump is still the president of the United States with the full powers and duties of the office until Inauguration Day. So on the one hand, They want to get that momentum going, acknowledge we're going to be working with a professional administration again, and we acknowledge that and want to get the the stage set. But they don't want to do anything that will unnecessarily poke the tiger and will make Donald Trump do something that would be detrimental to their own interests as well as to American interests. So it wouldn't surprise me if we saw a whole lot of leaders continue to do what they've done, which is put out a statement you know, congratulating Joe Biden on his victory and welcoming working with the new administration, but then not going over the top to praise him or to try to insist from other shores that Donald Trump must step aside. No, I think right. they would prefer to keep their heads down and just hope and, and wait and hope that things get better before January and don't get worse. 
It was still very, very striking um, that uh, they they turned the page so quickly. So I talked about this with uh, Adam White yesterday, uh, the Bill Barr memo authorizing an investigation into uh, voter irregularities. It was an interesting straddle because at the same time it said that we're not going to be investigating, you know, specious claims. It did, in fact, give Donald Trump uh, a, a talking point that we were going mm-hmm. to be, you know, uh, mobilizing the Department of Justice to go in there and look at the fraud. And apparently that was an extreme enough step that it caused the head of the election crimes division of the Justice Department to quit. So it, it, it is it's not nothing, but it's not clear to me how serious this is um, on the Department of Justice's part. Your take? Yeah, that's where I get to also is that resignation was was telling. There would be no reason to resign if um, if there was no chance of this being anything. So yes, yeah. um, I, I'm worried because of that. The text of the statement itself is, as many analysts have pointed out, rather lackluster. It, it yeah. is not a, a full-throated defense. It has a lot of weasel words and a lot of ifs in it. Um, if you had a presumption of goodwill you would assume that this was just the attorney general. You can almost picture him answering the phone call from the president saying, yes, Mr. President. Yeah, I'll put something out, Mr. President. Yes, uh, you know you know what? We'll, we will do that, Mr. President. And then coming out with a statement that basically checked the box but did nothing more. The problem is with, with Bill Barr, we have no presumption of goodwill. Given what he did with the Mueller report, given what he's done with other investigations, um, we unfortunately have to assume the worst, uh, even in a case where the text of the document doesn't suggest it. So I end up where Bill Kristol ended up in Mm -hmm. saying a little alarmism in the defense of liberty is no vice and complacency in the defense of democracy is no virtue. And I think that clearly applies to the bar letter. Yeah, I, I I think there needs to be concern, and of course they're they're trying to test what the limits are, mm-hmm. and and I think Bill also made the point about the danger of the unthinkable becoming thinkable. That, that we have seen this happen over and over again. You know, he wouldn't possibly consider that, would he? Well, he's considering it, but he wouldn't do it, would he? Mm-hmm. Well, he is doing it. Well, people, uh, responsible folks, will push back against that shattering of the norm, and then they don't. So um, yeah. it, it would be naive not to be concerned about some of. Uh, uh, some of this. It does strike me, though, that the, the longer this goes on, the stronger Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party will be. And there's, I think it was Marco Rubio was quoted as, you know, talking about 2024 and essentially acknowledging that it's a field of one and others that if Donald Trump wants to be the titular head of the Republican Party, he's going to be able to do it. So maybe, um, maybe. You know, it, I'm I'm well, not okay. I'm not so set on this for two okay, reasons. Tell me. Um, one is that we are seeing uh, Republicans at the state and local level, even those who were, you know, adamant mm. supporters of the president, who who are coming out and perhaps for their own local constituencies that we don't see in our national media bubble, um, who are pulling back. And this goes along with anecdotal evidence from many friends and former colleagues and family of mine in very red places around the country. Um, you also had Matthew Dowd to talk about this from Texas, where he's seeing the Trump flags are coming down. The people driving around in trucks honking, you know, with MAGA signs, um, those aren't happening anymore. The, the temperature is cooling, even as the president and those around him continue to spin things up. You even had the 
very Trump supportive Secretary of State of Montana I just tweet that. out, we've supported you, Mr. President. We, Montana, have supported you. You've accomplished incredible things during your time in office, but that time is now over. Tip your hat, bite your lip, and congratulate Joe Biden. When when you have that going on at the state and local level, yes, you may have Donald Trump over the next four years use his Twitter platform or Trump TV or whatever he ends up doing to continue his grievance tour into a new decade. Fine. But the mechanics of the party may not just hand another nomination to him. You have people who are seeing what's happening now saying, you know what? My neighbors, the people around, the people who elect me to this position in my state are, are not liking this. Um, that makes it different than the, the support for Trump before, which didn't really have anything negative other than, you know, some of his personal behavior, but they got over that. This is different. Now this gets in the way of their own reelection prospects at some level. Well, I guess the question, though, is that that if somebody is going to running, I mean, who would be able to beat Donald Trump in a, in a primary at this point? I just don't know who would be able to do that. You know, I who would be I started speculating that. about this in another conversation, and I had to cut myself off because I, I went back through the last several election cycles and I said, OK, um, if we would have said who can beat candidate X in 2012, Donald Trump wasn't even in the conversation. Um, if you go back to 2008, you know, about who was going to get the nomination. Yeah, Mitt Romney was in that conversation, but hmm. we were wrong about a lot of other people who peaked during that primary season. We are exceptionally bad at projecting forward well, that's four true. years. And that, a lot that, can happen in four years, including Donald Trump uh, not being around to be the nominee. We just don't know what's going to happen. So I cut well, myself off on that speculation. Yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think that's fair. I think it's going to be interesting to see who hen, ends up heading the Republican National Committee. I think that's going to be an interesting take. And whether or not, uh, if, if you if you have an RNC chairman, um, Don Jr., that tells you a little bit about where the party is going. Oh, I forgot to ask you about Mike Pompeo, which I thought when we were talking about the yeah. rest of, of the world. So here's uh, the Secretary of State of the United States in this capacity as Secretary of State of the United States, uh, asked about the transition. And he says, well, there's going to be a smooth transition to a second Trump term. And the world is, of course, divided between those who say he was just joking, let it go, uh, versus those who say, you know, this was really a tasteless thing for the Secretary of State to do at this particular moment. Trump is tweeting out what a great guy he is. So Trump didn't think it was a joke. Um, Pompeo has asked about it on Fox News, whether he was joking. He had an opportunity to to back away. He didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And yet you look at the tape and you, you can sort of tell he's not serious. I don't know. What, 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 do, we, what do we make of this? Yeah, his smirk afterwards was nauseating, um, <laughs> making a supposed joke about this um, in something that really has consequences, right? I mean, here's a person who briefly as head of CIA and then briefly as secretary of state and presumably in his time in Congress before then, um, looked at and cared about foreign policy and international relations. There are many examples, uh, too many painful ones to count, of countries who go through elections and then there are contested results and there ends up being blood in the streets and even civil wars. Um, that sounds like crazy rhetoric in the United States because we have had losing candidates who had legitimate gripes, whether it's Andrew Jackson in 1824 or Samuel Tilden in 1876, who had legitimate gripes that the process was uh, not only unfair, but fraudulent. 
And they decided not to call their followers out into the streets. The cries of Tilden or blood in 1876 were real. The the Democrats wanted to fight back. And Tilden basically said, no, the system matters more. Pompeo knows somewhere in his head, knows the difference between what happens overseas with this kind of rhetoric um, and and what has happened in the United States. Um, I know this because I know he, he enjoys history. I had the opportunity right after he became CIA director I gave him a copy of my book, The President's hmm. Book of Secrets, about the history of presidents, directors of the CIA, the provision of intelligence, how it's worked well, how it hasn't. And and he was quite pleased to get it because he just looked me in the eye and said, I really love history. This is going to be good. Well, he could just be saying that. He's a politician. But I don't think so. His experience shows he's somebody who knows history and understands the lessons of history then why the hell is he out there making a joke about this when history shows that this can go downhill quickly? Well, that, that's the that's the irresponsible part of it, is that we don't know how dangerous the moment is, um, mm-hmm. what will happen. You know, we have had these protests with people who show up with, with weapons. We have had shootings. You know, I live in Wisconsin. We had the killings in, in, in Kenosha. We had the, the, the plot in, in Michigan. You know, hopefully that, you know, we'll be resilient enough. And we'll be able to get through this. But it doesn't take, a, as I've said before many times on this podcast, it doesn't take a lot of people uh, for this to escalate quickly. And this is this is the, you know, my concern about these extreme nuclear things. You know, what would happen, for example, in, in a state like Michigan, if the legislature were to overturn a 150,000 vote margin? Would people take to the streets? Would both sides take to the streets? What would happen? That would be a volatile, angry moment because, you know, one of one of the principal parts of our political culture is that we don't resolve things by force because we resolve them at the ballot box. What if you throw out the ballot box? Mm-hmm. I mean, that just opens up this whole can and don't even mess around with it. Right. I mean, don't even. Uh, you know, you know, treat it like it's it's a game when you have somebody like Donald Trump. This is the problem, I think, of the appeasement of Trump by the Republicans is they think, oh, just give it some time. It'll it'll work out. But but their delay feeds the beast mm-hmm. and it feeds the doubt. It feeds the suspicion. And it, you yes, the temperature may be going down right now. But, uh, you know, that Donald Trump is completely capable of, you know, putting out the dog whistle. And raising the temperature, and that, and and that, that is my concern. Is that, that compare is, this? It, is I mean, that I'm, is that he has that he that he will find that he has no exit strategy? Yeah, I'm I'm with you totally. I yeah. mean, you compare this to what happened in as the winds of Watergate were blowing um, in 1974, when you had the Republican leadership go to President Nixon and essentially say, "Your time is up. There there is no path forward for you," right. and he had no choice but to do it. Imagine how different it would have been, even if one or two of them privately would have sent a message saying, you know, we think this is over. But publicly, they were out there saying, you know, we look forward to the rest of the Nixon administration or, you know, we will find a way and we support you, President Nixon. Um, Nixon probably would have fought it. And would he have won? Uh, No, he probably would have been convicted of, of his impeachment in the Senate and removed from power. But we don't know that because the dynamics would have changed dramatically if Nixon put out a full out fight and and made Republicans fight for him. But of course, that's not what happened. You had Republicans of conscience 
go to the president and say, your time is up. This has gone too far. Yeah. We have not had the equivalent of that delegation. Now, you could say that with Donald Trump, who's very different than Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon, for all of his faults, and he had them, um, did care about the country. He did ultimately care yeah. about the institutions um, as someone who served in the military, served as a senator, served as vice president, served as president. He still ultimately cared enough about the country not to burn it all down in a fit of pique. I don't know that we can say the same about Trump. If the same delegation were to go to him and say, Mr. Trump, it's over, would he basically say, this is the system I fought against? You have become the swamp. Sure. You're the enemy. That's possible. But why are you actually trying to encourage that to happen by entertaining him, by throwing him a lifeline? It's unconscionable. It's it is. It is dangerous. By the way, a couple of things we ought to point out that uh, that this this election um, is really not as close as some people are treating it as 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 being uh, right now. Even as, as you and I are speaking, uh, Joe Biden's share of the popular vote has ticked up to fifty point eight percent. And the reason that's significant is that Ronald Reagan, when when Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter back in nineteen eighty, he got fifty point seven percent. So if if this Biden margin holds or grows, it will mean this will be the highest percentage for a challenger, somebody who defeated an incumbent president since FDR beat Herbert Hoover back in nineteen thirty two. And yeah. what's interesting is also is that uh, that uh, in the in these in the determinative states, Biden's lead is substantially larger than the lead that that Donald Trump had four years ago. So we've had this entire conversation without acknowledging this other this major cloud that's over us. The governor of Wisconsin actually gave a, a, a really unusual address to the, the public yesterday here in Wisconsin about the level of the coronavirus crisis, uh, telling people, you know, you don't have to stay home. Uh, don't don't have big Thanksgiving dinners, mm -hmm. I mean, parties and everything. I mean, these these numbers, I mean, the U.S. has now passed 10 million cases of COVID-19. The hospitalization rates are at all, near, near all-time highs. Yesterday, we had a record number of 136,000 new cases, which was unthinkable even a month ago. Mm. The deaths that the death toll is about to cross over to 240,000, and all the epidemiologists are saying that the worst is yet to come. I mean, this thing is, and so th this we have when we talk about the transition, the various political maneuverings, it's with the backdrop of this massive thing that's headed back toward us. God knows what it's going to look like in January. I mean, Joe Biden's going to take office at a point where the coronavirus is going to dominate everything. We'll shade everything, political, economic, social, cultural. And I just, I, you know, we've had so many stress tests. And I think that there's sort of the desire to sort of take a deep breath and go, okay, well, that's over. It's not over at all. Mm -mm. And, I, and I think what Biden is doing during this, I'll call it the transition, even yeah, though the yeah. president doesn't see it that way, is is actually quite smart uh, politically. I think it's ethically the right thing to do, which is he is presenting himself as the calm, cool, collected leader of the nation. He has convened his working group on the coronavirus and is proceeding with real experts, listening to them and presumably um, setting himself up to make some different decisions about how to work with uh, state and local officials once he becomes president. Um, at the same time that this president, who essentially has nothing else to do, 
is not holding any meetings, not attending task forces, ignoring the problem. Now, I think we all wish that this president would attack the problem seriously, especially as it is um, getting worse instead of better. But you know what? That's not going to happen. So the best we can hope for is that the president-elect is as prepared as best as possible. Going back to your point about the victory uh, margin, the the 50.8% exceeding even Reagan's, this gets to a point that that I've been thinking about for a while, which is how bad we are. And I will say we as all Americans, or we in the national media bubble, or maybe it's just among some Democrats. I don't know who the, who the we is, but we have this tendency lately to fall prey to catastrophizing the immediate. And it happened when the Mueller report came out, is it was released, people looked at it, said there was there, there's no prosecution here. Barr was able to put out that it had nothing against the president, and that set the stage, and everything was about how bad this was. It happened in the 2018 elections. Do you yeah, remember exactly. election night? About The rhetoric was how bad the Democrats had screwed up, how they didn't get any momentum. This proved that Trump was winning. And then as results came in, it was a massive victory for the Democrats in Congress. I think the same thing happened here. Election night, as soon as some of the major networks started talking about some counties in Florida not having the turnout rate for Biden they expected, when Virginia wasn't called early, suddenly the the national catastrophizing of the immediate was, oh my God, this is too close. What's happened? What's wrong with us? But the actual result is one of the biggest elections ousting an incumbent in history. Exactly. It's, it's amazing yeah. what has happened, given all of the levers of power, given the president's control over the media. And, and I use that to say, whenever the president tweets or he fires the secretary of defense, and suddenly that's immediate headline news that wipes out everything else that's going on, even though firing the secretary of defense at this stage in the transition is not that big of a deal, he still controls the media And we catastrophize all of this without putting it in the big picture to say, Joe Biden won a resounding victory. And in fact, to the extent there are Democratic losses in Congress, they're actually not very big. And we're losing sight of that. Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing that that they did not do do better. And I think it is going to be interesting how Democrats internalize that, whether they pay attention to the Jim Clyburns of the world Hmm. who say that, you know, uh, perhaps you shouldn't get stuck on things like defund the police and things like that. But yes, Joe, Joe Biden has won a convincing victory. He's won a convincing victory throughout the industrial north, uh, flipping possibly Georgia and Arizona. Those would be big deals. If you and I were having this conversation a year ago and we were talking about an election in which Democrats won in Arizona and mm-hmm. in Georgia, we'd be going, wow, we're beginning to see a dramatic shift in American politics. And so I do think that there's there's kind of there's a lag time here in understanding what really what really happened um, and uh, also just watching some of the people overanalyzing the exit polls without acknowledging that most exit polls are complete crap. I mean, you know, hot piling, you know, hot piles of of, of garbage that are just going to mis, mis, mislead folks. But yeah, I I th- I think that this is what's so sort of disorienting is that we had this big victory that didn't feel like a big victory in real time. Um, 
I also think that you know there was there was that moment of euphoria the Democrats had on Saturday when the networks called it, and now there's the doubt because you have Donald Trump throwing this stuff up against the wall. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that as we get further along, we look back on this, we'll go that this was sort of you know these these bitter um, you know dead dead end spasms of you know of of, of Trump that that. No, that in the end it's not going to make it's not going to make that much difference. So again, I'm I'm trying to walk the line between agreeing that we ought not to be naive or complacent, that we ought to be concerned, without necessarily catastrophizing every single tweet or speculation here, because again, uh, Joe Biden won this election. He won it convincingly. There is no rational prospect for that to be overturned. He's going to be the president on January twentieth. That's right, and. I don't know how we get that perspective across to people because of human psychology. It's already baked in that yeah. this was a close election because so many people stayed up watching the election results and went to bed and it wasn't clear. And then the next day they're still counting. And even now they're still counting. Well, reminding people of the facts, which is every four years, they are still counting ballots for a long time. Maybe not like this because of the mail-in percentage, but there's always going to be the certification that happens. Nobody cares about that. That's right. seen as an afterthought because somebody at the network has called it. That's not the way the actual system works. But that means reminding people of the facts doesn't help because we don't we don't feel that way. Don't feel that um, way. And honestly, that's why Biden's performance in the last few days is more important because Biden is showing them, they're seeing with their own eyes, here is the person who is going to be the next president. He's pretending like it. He's acting like it. He's standing in front of a background that says president-elect. That is doing much more than us reminding people of the facts will do. I, I think that that's, that's a really good point, that we tend to sometimes discount the fact that that we are going to be getting more and more Joe Biden, and he seems to understand the moment, and he seems to understand the role. See, I have, I have two con- conflicting emotions about what's happening now and for the long term. For the long term, I'm really concerned about the number of Americans who are never going to believe that he legitimately won the election, who are going to buy the bullshit. Um, and, and the damage that does short term to Joe Biden's ability to govern and get things done, longer term to the legitimacy of our democracy. I'm worried about that. On the other hand, there's also part of me that thinks that, OK, take a deep breath. This is taking longer than we want. But as this is litigated, what will happen is that a lot of these false claims, these false stories will be refuted you know, as they fail in court. I think what they're like, oh, for nine or something like that right now, there's, you know, that, that perhaps people need to see this process play out, see the certification, hear the people who were on the ground that there was no fraud. The question is whether or not in our current media ecosystem, truth actually has a shot um, against all the misinformation. I mean, I think there's this naive thing we always tell ourselves, well, truth will always out. Well, not necessarily, not not in this particular age, but but there is there certainly is the possibility that as this goes on and it becomes clearer and clearer what the result was, the result was legitimate, that there were no significant problems. I mean, the New York Times went out and they contacted every single state. They have a big banner story going through, you know, checking where they're is there any evidence of fraud? Is there any evidence of, you know, d- dysfunction? Um, no, they didn't find it anywhere. Now, that's not going to affect the Trump world people who don't care what the New York Times says, but it's the beginning of creating a pretty compelling record that says this is what happened. 
Donald Trump lost. Joe Biden won convincingly. Yeah. I, to me, there's one major thing that we're we're not talking about here. Um, we're we're not talking about the functioning of the government overall, and the yeah. fact that there are millions of people who work for the federal government who, in theory, have been working for the Trump administration, but they're civil servants and they've been doing the job of the American people and getting most things done effectively, whether it's getting social security checks out, whether it's manning embassies overseas, whether it's processing visas, uh, most of that has still happened just fine. And these are not political actors. To the extent that there are people coming in at a high level uh, in the transition, showing them, we want to transition back to respecting that and not putting you in the crosshairs for things. I think I think we're overlooking that because it's not a sexy headline. And a transition is a time to realize most of the government doesn't transition. It's only the political actors mm. at the top and the political appointees. And thankfully, we had a lot of love this election for election administrators, ballot counters, the, the people doing the work of democracy while we sat home and, and watched Twitter to see what the latest results were. Um, they got some love. But what I would really love to see in this country is something we've completely ignored all the time, which is the people who actually serve all of us by volunteering to be an employee of the federal government with all the crap that comes with that, um, generally including lower pay than you would get in equivalent private sector jobs, um, and the perception that you're somehow political because you worked during a particular four years. Um, I would like to see some some love going to those people who are keeping our government functioning and are under extraordinary circumstances right now as perhaps this transition becomes the most difficult one we've ever had. David Priest, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very much, particularly Anytime. today. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.